All right, welcome to the Sweet Time to Fighting podcast. We have returning guest Dustin Orangeak. Welcome, Dustin. Hi, James. You know, thanks for coming on again. Uh, from your last episode, we talked deeply into isometrics. I actually sent you a couple of videos. I tried doing the uh, eccentric quasi isometric stuff, like your snatch deadlift one. I actually tried that the other day again. It wasn't too long ago, dude. That thing, like, I just can't bring myself to hold that position for that long. I don't know how you do it, but that thing is brutal. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a little bit of an issue with the EQI stuff, and just in terms of that, they're not really fun at all. Um, <laughs> but there's there's uh, there's some other cool studies going on. There's a researcher out of the University of Manitoba who's doing uh, some similar stuff now on EQIs. Oh, um, so I'm looking forward to that. I had a little uh, little text conversation with him the other day, and he's got some really cool stuff coming. Um, and then I'm also helping out with uh, an Iranian researcher looking at an actual training study. So mm. um, that's that's quite cool. Um, that one's uh, interesting because where it sort of lacks in terms of some research methodologies like ultrasound or like dynamometers or some really fancy tech, the uh, the actual interventions themselves are quite sort of ecologically valid. Um, and uh, that should be published sometime fairly soon we'll probably submit that within a few weeks um so just a a, a nice little summary of it all mm. it's just that there doesn't really seem to it, it, eqis does not seem to be worse than the dynamic training uh, or really better uh, at least in uh, untrained men over six weeks um so that might you know it's, a, it's kind of highly context dependent where mm. if you feel pain during a concentric then maybe a few weeks of eqi might be a good good idea and you're probably not missing out on, um, you know, missing out on the dynamic training for a couple of weeks. So, we'll it'll be interesting <laughs> to see when that one comes out, how that's uh, how that's received. And then again, I think that researcher at the University of Manitoba actually is using really nice techniques. I'm, I'm quite a fan. Whenever I talk to him, I'm saying that's uh, that's great. Um, but at the same time, we chatted and said, you know, I, I don't think I really want to lead anymore projects on EQI because it's not uh it's it's pretty niche and uh, yeah. to your point it's not exactly enjoyable <laughs> do you do you think then because you talked about how it's not any better or worse than traditional training and, and at least in those untrained cohorts do you think that more highly trained athletes may benefit because they are able to really push themselves yeah so there's sort of i guess there's two sides to that coin yeah, the, the trained athletes might be able to push harder and have a greater sort of intent. Um, I recently watched your video on the University of Michigan uh, strength and conditioning. Oh, nice. So I saw that like two days ago and, and you made the point about, you know, look at these like American football players and everything they're doing is with intent, not just to make themselves tired mm. uh, or to just put in work and just get volume in like a lot of uh, fighters and you know, a lot of other athletes kind of do. Um, so yeah, I think if there is an intent and you have you know, training partners, all that kind of stuff, then perhaps you might see better adaptation, uh, and just the dynamic. Um, but I think you're always going to miss out on, on the concentric portion of things. Um, so again, probably mm -hmm. context dependent on what phase of training you're in. Uh, do you have an injury? Do you have a little bit of knee pain or uh, uh, joint things that you want to kind of work around for a week or two? Um, yeah. But even then, I think like 
in my experience, what I hear from you as well and other people is after a couple of weeks of EQI stuff, you just, you, you're done like mentally, even if you're a real sort of high testosterone, <laughs> high drive sort of individual, really driven woman. I don't want to say high testosterone, right? But um, you're really, really driven. Um, after a couple of weeks, you're just like, no, like enough is enough. Yeah. It's for anyone listening. Some of the, I did a whole video actually on the YouTube channel on it, but one of the ones that's brutal that we're talking about now is you're essentially taking like a snatch deadlift. And I think you recommended like 140% of your snatch max. I don't know how many people will know kind of what that is. So, I mean, you could probably say, could you say like maybe your snatch 90? Yeah. It might be uh, like, like 80% of your max deadlift or something. Yeah. Yeah, and you're going to hold that position above the knee, and then you're just going to stay there as, or at the knee, I should say, and then just hold that as long as you can until you end up back down on the floor. <laughs> yeah, and pretty much. Yeah, you can do the same thing with like a pull up or something. Lower yourself down partially, um, so you're not that super easy, you know, kind mm. of top lockout position. Lower yourself down, and then uh, you know you hold it and hold it and hold it and hold it and hold it, and you can adjust the weight accordingly. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, it's it's a challenge mentally and physically, um, and, <laughs> to, uh, and to say the so, least. Yeah, so like I said, it'll be interesting to get a couple of studies out there. Um, but it, it again, it is it is so niche. I think it makes for like really cool smaller projects or like master's students and things like that. Mm. But I'm not sure if there's quite enough there to sort of hang your hat on as like a full time permanent researcher. Um, yeah, in, in most systems, but uh, it's is interesting and fun. Nice. I'm literally looking forward to what comes out of uh, that uh, PhD student in Manitoba because, like I said, um, to, to sing their praises, they're, they're doing good stuff. Nice. I have to bring them on once, once that's all published. And uh, we talked a little bit just before the podcast about some more research you've got coming out soon on, was it holding versus pushing isometrics? Do you want to maybe just dive in a little, little bit into that? Maybe just the differences between the two, like uh, physically, like what they actually are, and then maybe dive into some of those findings. Yeah, so this was a finding, uh, or this was a topic that I sort of, of course, encountered when I was working on the EQI stuff during my PhD, because uh, mm -hmm. it is highly relevant. Uh, we're talking about you know holding a deadlift position at the midpoint until you just can't do it, and you, you let it pull you all the way down to the floor with max effort. So the, the pushing versus holding stuff, uh, there's actually a fair amount out there. Uh, but I, I became a little more interested in this because I think it actually has, um, it, it's easier to implement than full-blown EQIs. And we're talking about clinical populations uh, with injuries or neurological issues or even like blood pressure, heart rate type problems. So um, for the listeners uh, who might not know, if you could imagine like holding a 30 pound or 15 kilo dumbbell or something like that in your, in your arm in like a bicep curl position and your elbows at 90 degrees and you're holding it there, you know, as long as you possibly can uh, until you kind of get to task failure or you're just holding it for like five seconds. It doesn't really matter, but that's a holding isometric contraction. There's no change in the muscle tendon length. You're keeping your arm at 90 degrees, but you're holding an external load, right? You're resisting gravity, you're a cable station or, you know, a partner that's pushing against you or something like that. Whereas a pushing isometric contraction, you can do the same sort of joint angle with the 90 degree elbow angle or your shoulder can be at the same point, 
but you're pushing against like a, a force plate or a squat rack or a, you know a bar that's loaded with a weight you can't move and you're pushing with exactly 15 kilos or 30 pounds of sort of effort or force if you happen to have a strain gauge or a force plate to be able to actually quantify those so um so again one you're pushing against an object that is immovable and the other one you are holding an object that is movable but you're trying to make sure it doesn't move so that's a pushing uh, or holding other phrasing or terminology would be like an overcoming isometric versus a yielding isometric um, and there are other sort of ways that these are put in people talk about them in books or or texts perfect and then if i'm going to summarize them very simply and you can dive into it a bit more from your research overcoming or pushing isometrics are typically better for developing maximal strength rate of force development or how quickly you can produce force uh with that whereas holding isometrics may potentially be better for uh developing strength in certain positions uh i think from your paper you mentioned things like joint stabilization during certain positions as well do you maybe just go a little bit further and if i'm completely wrong tell me i'm, I'm completely wrong on those <laughs> well you're not completely wrong that's that's definitely the uh that's definitely the overarching thought uh around them um and then as a as a little bit of a preview as you mentioned um Hopefully it'll be submitted within the next month or two. Uh, I think we're relatively close. I've got a really good team uh, working on a, on a systematic review with uh, a few meta-analyses. One, one meta-analyses portion is done, and we're just having to go into the figures and actually uh, digitize the figures and pull out the data because the, the info is not uh, readily available in tables or text. Um, so again, great team. We got a couple of people from Germany that really like repopularized it because they had a paper that came out in 2017 with a really catchy title. Uh, so <laughs> even though there's been work done on it uh, for you know, since I think 2000 and 1999, I think was the first paper, the earliest paper we found. So we have you know 35 years worth. Or not 35, 25 years. Yeah, I was going to say, of, uh... damn, I feel old now. <laughs> I was like, I'm not 45. Um, you know, we've got about 25 years worth of data here, um, but there's a lot of little limitations to that data, and I'll get into that in a bit. But basically, we have these 53 studies, and we've added them all together and kind of gone through and, and checked them out. Uh, and based on those, what you just said, James, about joint stability and max stuff is, is very likely true. So um, when we look at time to task failure, that was the most consistent metric across these studies. So out of these 53, you know, like 20 some look at this and 15 look at that, there's some overlap. Um, but the, the meta-analyses are very, very clear for the most part with one caveat that's quite interesting in that uh, time to task failure is always longer with pushing versus holding. So holding is a more challenging task, which makes sense. You're not like kind of on a guide rail. You have to use your uh, antagonist muscles and your synergist muscles to sort of stabilize that joint angle. And they're gonna turn on and off a little bit differently. There's that load sharing. It's a little bit more of a complex task um, for the brain and the neurological system. Um, and then there's a few little papers that don't even look necessarily at time to task failure, but what is the maximal yielding force or potential versus just so what is your pushing isometric maximal versus your holding isometric maximum mm -hmm. and the pushing is 
always higher. You can hold the same load for a longer period of time. So it totally makes sense that pushing is going to be better for maximal strength because your maximal effort is going to be more forceful than, than a holding uh, type movement. And then I just mentioned all the synergist stuff and the antagonist stuff uh, and agonist activation. So yeah, holding would probably lead to better adaptations um, in joint stability. Uh, there's also some really interesting ones that might also tie in with the time to task failure, like metabolic activity. So oxygen consumption, um, blood restriction, uh, those things being higher with the holding. So might actually get better, um, potentially better um, cardiovascular adaptations. And then if there's adaptations for muscular hypertrophy that are accelerated due to uh, like hypoxic environments, like with blood flow restriction, then perhaps holding isometrics might also be um, more beneficial for like hypertrophy or, or mm. even tendon adaptation. Um, so that's kind of our basic findings so far. Uh, I still aim to do uh, more meta components with heart rate, uh, blood pressure, and uh, RPE. I think there's enough there, but it's just we have mm. to pull them out of figures, which is a little bit time consuming. Um, and then the, the absolute, I'll, I'll give you the limitations of this yeah. <laughs> right away because I know what they are. Uh, so the big ones are none of the studies out of the 53 are multi-joint. Well, that's not a hundred percent true. I'm going to loop back really quick <laughs> yep. um, and say that the only caveat with that time to task failure, interestingly, was that it is incredibly consistent for the ac uh, the appendicular joints, so the arms, the legs, knee extensions, ankle flat, ankle ankle dorsiflexions, uh, elbow, you know, flexions and extensions. But there's two studies that examined like a back extension, basically, mm. and they actually found the exact opposite, where time to task failure was longer with holding versus pushing. So that might have something to do with just the fact that those muscles are always working in a holding fashion, just so we stand upright or we sit upright in our chair. So they're just completely adapted to that. Whereas the muscles of our quadriceps are more for, you know, actual propulsion, standing mm. up from chairs, walking up a hill, you know, walking in general, biceps and shoulders. Okay. We're reaching for stuff. They're never, they're very rarely just like holding for hours on end. Right. Um, as opposed to our lower back and kind of our glute muscles. So that was, uh, that was kind of a, an interesting finding. Mm. And to that point, the limitations of what the literature shows and what I hope will be expanded on in the future, either by myself or others, is none of those 53 studies uh, use multi-joint multi exercises like squats, sponges, pull-ups, you know, things like that, a push-up position. Um, it's always single joint bicep curl knee extension. Uh, that's a big one. There's also no studies that are longitudinal in nature. They're all acute. Mm. What's going on during the contraction or immediately before, immediately after. So there's still no real hard evidence that says, yes, okay, tendon adaptation is better with one versus the other. Strength or power is better with one versus the other. Hypertrophy mm. is better. We can just kind of try and uh, extrapolate a little bit. So those, those are the big ones. There's other limitations um, uh, as well. No clinical populations, which I think is actually probably the target for these types of things uh, with pain. Um, and then I think the last thing I'll mention 
was there was, I think, three studies that used experimental joint pain. So what they would do is they would take a saline solution and inject that into the patella tendon, and that would irritate the tendon temporarily. So the pain would wear off after a few hours, mm. but for, for a few hours, it would feel like you had, you know, uh, pretty, you know, pretty rough uh, bout of tendonitis. And then they would have people who measure them beforehand, you know, like measure the force, measure the, the force variability, but then they also had EC, uh, ECG. So that was like the, you know, the, you see these the big things sometimes, usually in like scientific ads where they're trying to make science look really sciencey. <laughs> and uh, you've got a, you got a cap with like, you know, 40 electrodes on it and you're measuring brain activity and, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and they found that uh, the, the, the difference between before pain and after pain or during pain was not very big with the holding isometrics, whereas it was fairly large with the pushing. Um, so that would maybe lead you to believe that the holding is going to be better tolerated in people with pain, um, mm. or at the very least that exercising with holding is not going to negatively alter like your your coordination, your intramuscular and neurological coordination uh, when you have pain. So those are those are some interesting things mm. that would make me think that holding might be better than pushing for rehabilitation and pushing might be better than holding for, you know, strength, power, performance, athletic development. I hope you're enjoying the chat so far. Before we get back to that, I just want to let you know that Sweet Science of Fighting is more than just a podcast. We have a full training app with strength conditioning programs for strikers, grapplers, and MMA athletes. So you don't have to think about what you're doing and you're getting access to the latest scientific methods to improve combat sports performance. We have programs specifically for judo, for jujitsu, for wrestling, MMA, boxing, Muay Thai is coming soon. All these things are going to be in the training app. We also have a private community where some of the coaches that have been on the podcast are in there to help you with any training questions and any performance questions you have. For example, Andrew Usher and Casper DeVitt. We also have some online courses within the training app. They cover strength, conditioning, mental skills, and weight cutting. And finally, we now have Ryan Villalobos in the community, a second degree jiu-jitsu black belt, who is there to break down any of your grappling matches that you want seen to by a second eye. He's currently breaking down videos on a separate Sweet Science of Fighting YouTube channel, and he will break down your video within the community. So if you have a match or a role that you just recorded, you can upload that in there and Ryan will break that down for you. So what are you waiting for? Jump down in the description. You can check out the Sweet Science of Fighting underground. Otherwise, enjoy the podcast. Would you, if you're programming these kinds of isometrics, holding and uh, pushing, is there... Is there a way that you typically like to maybe periodize these into a training cycle or are you kind of sometimes just doing both depending on what the athlete needs? Um, mm -hmm. Is there maybe a progression regression maybe where you're going from holding to more to more pushing or does it does it really matter? Yeah, so that's that's a fair point, um, which uh, makes me very briefly look back, loop back to one more limitation of that data. <laughs> yeah. And that's that the vast majority of those studies are using very low loads. So, uh, again, out of those like 52 or 53 studies, the average, not the lowest, the average load is 36% of pushing isometric maximum. Okay. Okay. There's like a couple that examine very briefly 100%, but most are like 20, you know, 30%. So far too low to really 
So that's another one where, you know, other researchers or myself or something, we have to look at like, okay, what is 80%, 70%, 60%, you know, even 50% what's going on. Um, so again, it makes it difficult to base it on the research, but mm. anecdotally, there's people who are doing a lot of stuff with their athletes. Um, so I don't think they'll mind me saying, but we have on, on the team working on the review, we've got a couple of great researchers from Germany that are really all about you know, the research side and the tech and the stats and all that kind of stuff. And then we also have guys like uh, Alex Natara oh, yeah. uh, and uh, Danny Lum uh, in Singapore. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you're familiar with those guys, yeah. but those are two members of that uh, the team that I'm talking about. So I pulled nice. them on board for exactly this reason. So we can go to the discussion and talk about this data and say, okay, well, how might we apply it? How are we applying it? So they might be good guests for the future. I don't know if, uh, <laughs> if you can, if you want, I can give you their, their contacts. Um, but from what I sort of understand, because uh, I'm a little bit out of the practical game, I haven't done a whole lot for a little while. Um, but I think where you'd probably end up going with this is a more of a periodized approach. So if you're coming back from either like a surgery or some sort of an injury, I would probably lean towards holding ISOs uh, as my sort of first go-to um, out, you know, past like the really early stages where you're doing like ankle pumps and just like yeah. trying to walk normally. Um, then you're probably maybe doing some holding ISOs, maybe advancing to the pushing ISOs, getting up to close to like a hundred percent effort uh, in order to sort of retrain the neurological system. Uh, and potentially get some like blood occlusion effects and build up some strength and maybe even some size, especially if you're coming back from a relatively long layover or layoff um, uh, after an injury or a surgery or something like that. Maybe then, you know, if you become detrained in that sense, a holding isometric bout, uh, several bouts of, you know, 45 seconds to, you know, two or three minutes even might be enough to, to give you some stimulus for size for a couple of weeks. Um, and then I'm probably, for the most part, getting away from isometrics in terms of athletic development um, until maybe we get to more advanced stages, in which case then you can start adding in some of like Alex and Danny's like run specific isometrics, mm. like hamstring switches, you know, the stuff where you're driving a bar and do a squat rack on a, on a stance type position if you're a sprinter or a jumper or something like that. Um, but again, those guys are actually, they're, they're practicing that with elite athletes, you know, at, whether that's in Australia or Singapore. Um, whereas again, I'm, I'm, uh, a little bit out of that world for almost a year now. Nice. And I'm going to put you on the spot, a coaching spot again, then, because we actually had a, qu a question live on the podcast. Feel free to pass on it, whatever I'll, I'll weigh in after you as well. But Alice Hickson, he's asking, do you think Muay Thai Muay Thai training is okay to do the day after full body strength training, then also doing a full body session again the day after Muay Thai. So basically going full body strength day one, uh, sorry, Muay Thai day one, full body strength day two, then uh, Muay Thai again the following day. What's your thoughts on that? Um, well, just, I mean, this is going to depend highly on like, well, what kind of intensity and volume are you doing on all three of those sessions? If, it, if they're all three super high, then you know, better have a pretty good recovery period and, and good, you know, recovery practices with nutrition and sleep and, and all that good stuff. Um, but I would say in a more sort of general basic sense, and I'm, I'd be happy to, you know, cede uh, authority to James on this one. 
Um, but I would say from a sort of philosophical, you know, all encompassing standpoint that there's no problem with that. Um, just the dosages are really going to have to be monitored uh, and, and sort of thought of really carefully. Um, with anything, you go into a Muay Thai practice, uh, you know, I don't, I've never done it myself, but I'd imagine there's some sort of a conditioning element. There's warm ups, and then there's a lot of technical skills and drills and things that, that people are probably doing. And you just want to make sure that when you're going into those skills and drills, that you're not so fatigued that you're doing them poorly. Because um, you generally don't want to just practice bad technique because oh, my quads are so sore. So when I'm doing <laughs> this movement, now I'm using more of my hips than sort of proper Muay Thai technique calls for. Uh, or vice versa. But uh, yeah, in general sense, yeah. I don't think there's a problem with that type of schedule. Yeah, no, exactly. That's that's a pretty easy way to, to set it out, Alice, in terms of your training. Again, as Dustin mentioned, it's the dose that makes the poison. If you're doing a full body session, that's like, I don't know, some kind of small love routine, you know, hardcore powerlifting based, stupid volume, yeah, there's going to be problems. But if you're doing uh, lower volume work in that full body strength day, which it should be, it definitely should be lower volume and typical bodybuilding powerlifting programs won't give you that lower volume. You'll be pushing, you know, sets of five, three to five sets of five often and, and things like that. And most basic ones you'll find online, which can be, uh, I'm not going to say detrimental, but can be not so great, especially if you're doing Muay Thai on days before and after. So bear that in mind, you will need to do lower volume work on those days. And again, obviously depends on what you need, what kind of what that session fills out as as well. And also depends on what's your main priority. Is Muay Thai your number one or is kind of lifting and getting bigger and stronger your number one? So it's a few different factors to think about in there. If you're unsure, check the description. Sweet Times of Finding Underground is there for you. But um, <clears throat> carrying on with the isometric stuff, I wanted to come more on, I guess, more the practical coaching side. I know you mentioned you've been out of it for a bit, but that's all good. I know you still have some good insight on this, but isometrics is part of a complex so obviously when we're talking about complex training for the listeners you know we're looking at uh a controversial topic i guess of post-activation potentiation but people often do for example heavy squats then go into jumps to potentiate that high power movement now there's obviously been quite a few people even myself have programmed this before in terms of doing a hard pushing isometric for say six seconds and then doing for example a box jump uh with that what's your what's your thoughts on doing something like that is there some is there some beneficial i mean is there any research on that and is there anything beneficial for doing something like an ice a hard isometric as the conditioning activity before a power movement yeah so uh there's definitely evidence out there uh, i'm not uh, i won't pretend to know all of the latest stuff uh and all, you know, all of that because it's, it's pretty far away from what i what i'm what i research myself um but from what i understand uh that yes, there's generally going to be uh, sort of a benefit in the fact that you'll probably be able to jump a little bit higher, practice uh, uh, activating those really high threshold motor units uh, more regularly and more rapidly uh, after you have sort of an activation protocol. So um, actually what, what a lot of the PAP, whatever other abbreviations they're using right post-activation performance enhancement yeah. versus post-activation <laughs> potentiation uh, and that's really just scientists sort of arguing with each other about well do we get more activation or potentiation or just performance going up right yeah um, and not wanting to mislabel things but i as far as i know for all intents and purposes they're the same thing the where i think it, it people need to 
think about things a little bit more is that, yeah, we generally see improvements in like jump height. Um, however, I think there's a pretty low amount of research that actually says, okay, well, does that lead to long-term benefits? Hmm. I think that's probably the biggest limitation in the research. There might be one or two things out there, but I, and it's just so hard to run training studies um, that are really well done with good sample yeah. sizes and all that kind of good controls. It's, it's so it's so difficult in a lot of senses. So we see that, yes, performance acutely improves, but does that actually lead to improvement down the road? It's kind of like once you get strong, does getting any stronger make you a better fighter, right? Mm. Um, so that's a big one that's limited. And then the other thing is, well, how can we apply these principles without making our training sessions last three hours or something, right? So yeah. how can we make it uh, applicable to sort of everyday life? Because if it gives you, a, you know, a two or 3% benefit, that's great. But if it adds 45 minutes to your session, then that's not a great trade-off. So most PAP protocols will say, okay, push, you know, maximally into this like super maximally loaded bar that we can't move or something like that. And then a lot of studies will look at, well, how long is sort of the optimal amount of time to wait between the activation and then the jump or the sprint or the explosive effort, the med ball throw. And if I remember correctly, most studies show like three to five minutes, sometimes six minutes, sometimes, sometimes eight. <laughs> yeah, sometimes 10. Okay. So I think there's a couple ways around that issue because if you're trying to do six sets and you're waiting five minutes, that's 30 minutes of just resting. That's not counting the time you're doing the push or your jumps or your throws. So that's 30 minutes. That's, you know, a lot of a lot of MMA fighters and stuff. That's how long their weight training session is after a warm up, right? <laughs> so there's a couple ways around it. The, the the cool thing I think is to actually do sort of the opposite of what most people think, where they say, "Okay, I'm going to do my activation, and then I'm going to rest five minutes, and then I'm going to do my jump." What you do is you do your activation on the first set. You wait five minutes, you do your jump, and then like pretty much immediately after your jump, maybe you rest like 20 seconds, and then you do your push again. And then sometime within that five-minute period, that's when you can maybe do some correctives or something like that. You've got elbow pain, do your elbow rehab exercises, and do your jump, and then do your activation. Mm -hmm. So I hope that makes sense the way I worded it. But I think you can yep. fit things into that five-minute rest period or six-minute rest period or whatever sort of determined to be optimal um without messing it up you don't want to do like you know go and do a max set of bench press or something like that but you know do your band pull aparts sure you know, do your yeah. forearm do your, do your grip work yeah probably I, I don't think uh doing a different muscle at a really low intensity is going to mess up your training and then the other thing the last thing i'll mention that i kind of pretty sure is true uh, is that the the benefits are really variable. So some athletes get a lot out of these yeah. things and some athletes get none. And some athletes actually get a detriment even when they rest the optimal amount of time. So it's probably something to experiment with for one or two sessions. If you have the ability to like measure it on a jump mat or a vertex or you know, if you've got force plates or, or some other sort of resource to help you actually understand, well, does this protocol allow me to jump higher or throw this medicine ball farther than if I'm just jumping and not doing a maximal, you know, semi-squat. Um, and if it does, then 
cool. And if it doesn't, hey, now you know what doesn't work for you and you just save mm. yourself a bunch of time and effort. A more research-based question for you, for someone who's far more versed in conducting research than I am. In terms of the actual protocols they use to test test these things, they'll do, for example, conditioning activity like a maximal squat, and then they'll do their jumps, and they'll do jumps 30 seconds after a minute, three minutes, five minutes, seven minutes, et cetera. But then doesn't each jump then potentiate potentially the next one? Yeah. So I think... I think, and this would be different um, depending on the research, because if you, you know, if we were to Google Scholar, you know, PAP jumping or something like that, there's probably going to be, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, like there's going to be high double digits at the very minimum, uh, at the very minimum. So, but what, what some researchers have done to try and um, remedy this is many different days of testing and then randomizing it. So okay. participant okay. one on day one rests five minutes and then five days later they do it all again. And then that participant rests 30 seconds and then five days, you know, 10 days later, they bring them in that person rests three minutes and, and so on. So they're bringing these people in on multiple times and then participant two, they start with the longest rest first then the shortest and participant three, it's all randomized to try and wash out any like training effects or extra familiarization or something like that. So I think that's how those are done or at least should be done because uh, you're absolutely right. If, if they're just doing one activation and then they're doing a maximal jump at, you know, 30 second intervals or something like that, you're going to have some sort of like neurological washout or, mm. or additional stimulus that's going to kind of muddy your research question. For sure. And uh, to go further down research, you obviously, you've, you've, you've been publishing a shit ton. I searched your name in Google Scholar and just went by 2023. And dude, you have like a whole bloody page of stuff. Um, we'll preface this that you're not the lead author on all of these, but still you have, you know, you're part of the research on them and you have some good insight on them. And the first one I actually want to touch on relevant to the audience here is the neuromuscular adaptations to different set configurations during a periodized power training block in elite junior judoka. So also you're comparing tra traditional straight sets. So for anyone listening, like three sets of five would just be traditional states, uh, straight set versus cluster sets. So as an example, if you're doing two plus two plus two, you'd rest maybe like 30 seconds between each double. Um, and then you're able to maintain lift, uh, rep velocity and, and a bunch of other things. So maybe just dive into, uh, I guess, your findings on that and what kind of practical stuff came out of that study. Yeah, so that was a study to give you some background that was done by um, predominantly uh, by a guy named uh, Dale Harris. And Dale Harris is at uh, Victoria University in Melbourne. That's where I met him uh, when I was uh, going through some of my studies at, at BU. And um, Dale, for uh, I don't know exactly how long he was there, but Dale's. Um, main background is in strength and conditioning and then as of lately he's moved into sort of the academic realm uh, and he's uh, predominantly lecturing at, at BU with some research um, but for a good while Dale went to India and worked with the judo teams in India mm. in a strength and conditioning type setting so these particular participants are um, uh, relatively young. Again, I, I, I wish I had the study in front of me. I might just bring it up myself. So if you see 17 me clicking and away, a half years on average. Yeah. So if you see me click, kind of clicking away, uh, <laughs> that's, that's what I'm trying to find myself. Um, but uh, yeah, 
So 17 years of age, roughly, and um, uh, pretty good. So again, I, if I remember correctly, they were all like pretty solid uh, athletes, uh, relatively high up in the Indian uh, system. And um, Dale was like, okay, cool. Like this is a good number of people. Let's like actually do some studies. And they were all like, they're all for it. Uh, and they and they kind of went and did their thing. So um, basically there was two blocks. So there was like a, a hypertrophy uh, block and then a max strength, uh, max, uh, max uh, strength training block uh, for a lot of these people. Um, and for the most part, uh, if I remember correctly, I, I am really struggling to remember. So if you've got the abstract up, you can, uh, yep. you can sort of help do, me do, out. Do, on do me to run through it. Yeah, honestly, that'd be great. All right. So it's eight weeks total, hypertrophy and strength blocks. The final four-week power training block, they were separated into the traditional set versus the cluster set structures. Cluster sets were 45-second inch rest every two reps. So two plus two plus two with 45 seconds rest between. Um, one rep maximum peak barbar velocities of the back squat and bench press. Counter movement, jump height were assessed before and after the four-week mesocycle. Do you want me to run through the results here too? Yeah, so I've got them up in front of me as I well uh, just now, just from the abstract. So obviously <laughs> there's going to be more details there. Um, but yeah, after after the hypertrophy block, you know, a lot of strength and power improvements were already noted, which sort of makes sense, right? Um, yeah. Whereas after the training block, there were also some pretty good improvements. However, for the most part, uh, there was fairly fairly minimal differences between the traditional training and the cluster set groups. So that was sort of like the main finding there. There was a couple of exceptions, um, but generally speaking, um, there was there's not massive, massive uh, differences or huge benefits to one versus the other. Um, although, you know, there's some cool figures down there if people ever want to, to look at them where you can kind of look at the general direction that most people go and again pretty consistent um and there might be some people that will improve better with one versus the other um, mm -hmm. but at least in that particular population it doesn't really look like cluster sets are like um you know clearly superior to just traditional yeah. loading um and that kind of leads back to that population of being relatively young uh, you know, at 17, they probably haven't done a whole lot of like hardcore resistance training. So um, there's a lot of other studies that show cluster sets are advantageous and some that show they're not. Um, and uh, you probably do have to break them down by participants and their experience mm. and their age and things like that. I actually did break it down a little while ago and I found the studies that use traditional set tra traditional exercise, like squats, bench, etc. <laughs> didn't see differences between uh, long-term benefits between cluster sets, traditional sets. But when you uh, use ballistic exercise, like jump squats and things, that's where you saw the big differences. Uh, okay. uh, I would say uh, advantageous towards cluster sets versus traditional, which is interesting. So it might just be an intent thing during the cluster sets. I don't know. It's uh, So, I mean, I I'm still a big fan of them, especially for combat athletes. Even if there's no difference between them, at least you're kind of reducing some of that fatigue when you're doing some kind of cluster set if you're just doing traditional stuff. Yeah, well, I think it's also, cluster sets, I think, are also a really good way of maintaining really good intensity and intent yeah. with each repetition. 
um, you know, a traditional set would say, especially again, if you don't have researchers yelling at you and just trying to train on your own or with a small group of people or something like that, you say, Mm -hmm. okay, you're going to do four sets of eight reps. A lot of times, you know, especially with young people who may or may not even want to be in the gym, they know it's good for them, but you know, they just, they want to shoot a basketball or they want to kick a soccer ball around, right? (laughs) Or they want to fight. Um, kick a bag or whatever your, ha- your sport happens to be, and you tell them, okay, we're going to do three sets of eight reps in the back squat. And their first three reps, they're not really like intent on their technique. They're they don't really care about velocity. Same on the last ones, they're getting tired. So you know you kind of have this like couple reps are good, a couple reps are bad. But when you say, okay, you're going to do two, that's twenty seconds, then do two. I, I think there's probably you're probably going to get more intent out of uh out of cluster sets um again especially if you don't actually have like a coach that's really motivating you through that long set of eight mm. um so that's just a thought of mine um but i'm no, not like sure that. that's true no i like that i like that hey guys it's me again i just want to let you know that I also have Sweet Science of Fighting rash guards and shorts, so you can represent Sweet Science of Fighting on the mats and within competition. We have the classic, just like the shirt I'm wearing, rash guard, Sweet Science of Fighting on the front, and we have the logos on the sleeves, and then X-Marsh on the back. We also have that in a shorts variation, same thing, with the Sweet Science of Fighting writing on one leg, and we have the logo on the other, but my personal favorite, this is my personal favorite far. We have this in black and white. And it is the Tanifar Protector Guardian version of the Sweet Science of Fighting with the logo on the back. This was designed by a Māori designer back in New Zealand. So a bit of my heritage on this jersey. It represents the acknowledgement of battle and war. It also represents strength and stability and also has the New Zealand silver fern. But even if you're not a Kiwi, cop this this is an awesome design it is custom made design you will not find it anywhere else so check that that'll also be down in the description with a discount code but back to the podcast i like the um i like the take on that one too and i also wanted to go into uh, a recent review and meta-analysis that you're a part of as well on i guess it kind of ties onto a similar uh i guess protocol and, and some of the thinking around traditional and advanced resistance training on muscle hypertrophy and trained individuals. So basically your muscle growth. So for anyone listening, traditional, again, our traditional normal sets, three sets of five as an example, and then advanced techniques. So in the paper here, they're talking about accentuated eccentric training. So that would be your uh, lifting over your concentric 1RM eccentrically. So if you're doing 110% 1RM for your back squat, as an example, drop sets. So I think everyone listening has probably done or knows drop sets, essentially ripping out whatever the stack and then dropping down and ripping out again, then dropping down, ripping out again. Forced reps. You've probably seen every bodybuilding YouTuber do forced reps, um, having someone assist you. German volume training, 10 sets of 10 is another one. Um, we've got paired sets, uh, which is, I think a superset of the same muscle group, is it? I think it is. Or is it? No. Yep. Yeah. Um, yep. And then also like with paired sets, as opposed to a superset, there might be a break in between as opposed to gotcha. you know, going immediately from one to the other. But yeah, yeah, generally that's, that's correct. Perfect. Then there's pre-exhaustion, hitting the muscle before, uh, isolating before doing a multi-joint exercise, a pyramid uh, set and rep configuration, essentially going up and typically going down, rest pause, uh, which has become probably really popular recently because it's, it's not rebranded, but it's very similar, like the Maya reps that a lot of people are talking about now, kind of very similar in terms of that, basically 
finishing a set close to failure, resting 20, 30 seconds and doing more. Uh, super slow reps, which is something that I think was popular not too long ago. I think those are all the advanced ones in there. But do you know, maybe just dive into some some of the findings or applications out of out of this paper. Fair. Yeah, so it was, it was sort of funny when you were starting to talk about cluster sets. I kind of knew you were going to segue. <laughs> so I, I preemptively brought this one nice. on the screen and just kind of flicked through it really quick. Um, because again, when I'm when you're not the lead author on these things, they tend to fall out of your brain a little bit faster yeah. than like they're yours and they're your project. Um, so yeah, uh, as again, just a real quick sort of overview. I always kind of again tell people who, who led and, and what kind of came from it. Um, so this was predominantly done from some research that are researchers that I've known for quite a while from Brazil. So um, uh, you know, great guys, uh, and they do. Um, resistance training stuff, but also some other stuff. And just, I've never met a Brazilian I didn't get along with. So <laughs> if you want a friendly friend, search, search out uh, search out somebody from Brazil. Uh, anyway, so yeah, systematic review with some meta-analysis. Um, uh, and I will say that the number of studies that conform to the inclusion criteria was relatively low. So interesting findings, cool stuff, uh, but not like quite as authoritative as when we have like a meta-analysis that's got like 40 studies or something mm -hmm. like that uh, altogether. And then the fact that we're looking at, you know, paired sets, pyramid sets, forced reps, all of these things, and we're pulling them together and trying to come out and say, okay, well, advanced stuff is, is better or isn't. It's, it's washed away a little bit. It's a little bit diluted by yeah. the fact that we don't have... 20 on force reps and and 20 on super slow we're kind of putting them all together so a little caveat for people especially when we're reading research i hope that to kind of pay attention to these little things uh, and not just the abstract that's not big enough to be able to say okay well what's the problems uh, however yes in general um, with these studies there did not seem to be a clear advantage to using advanced training methods versus you know just straight sets traditional training um, for again hypertrophy and then the other thing again is the vast majority of research studies in these areas are typically on like university age people who are like recreationally active mm. they lift once in a while sometimes they don't lift at all uh, and at that point you know everything is going to work yeah. um, so finding something that's going to work like statistically significantly better uh, is relatively rare outside of, you know, giving them steroids or something like that. <laughs> um, so again, if you're not an advanced trainee, there's probably no need to use advanced resistance training methods. You can get away with the basics for probably longer than most people are, are willing yeah. to, to stick with them. Um, again, there's some benefit to like advanced stuff in that it's fun. It's motivating. Um, you know, I've had this conversation, a similar conversation with a few people, because uh, at the gym that I go to for lifting, um, you know, I, I noticed, oh, there's a big bucket of chains now. Oh, okay. I like that. <laughs> and, and so I was like, oh, do you, do you, do you like chains? And I was like, I like them, but I know that they're probably not going to help me like squat and bench and deadlift any better than if I just trained really hard without chains, hmm. especially because I, I don't do like equipped stuff, right? I don't use like a bench shirt or or deadlift suit or anything like that that typically helps you out of the bottom at that point maybe chains are beneficial i don't know but you know so chains for example they kind of you know they get heavier at the top but nobody misses a squat right at the top in a powerlifting meet 
right? Same mm -hmm. with the bench. It's pretty rare that that raw bench press competitors miss right at the very top of the lockout. It's usually somewhere in the middle. Same with the squat. Most deadlifters, deadlift may be a little different because some people really struggle with the lockout. Yeah. Some people really struggle off the floor. So based on all that logic, like bands and chains shouldn't really help a raw power lifter. But from a psychological point of view, if I'm bored with training and I put in a lot of chain stuff on my squats or benches or something like that, for a couple of weeks, I might be just extra motivated. Oh, cool. I get to use chains today. Like, it's just going to look cool for my Instagram. It like, sounds cool. You know, it sounds <laughs> cool. Get, you know, metal stuff. Like, cool. I'm doing like some hip rehab and I was wrapping the chains around my neck to add a little bit of extra body weight for my single leg step ups. And it's like, you know, it's cooler. It's more fun than holding a dumbbell or something like that. So if you're more motivated, you're just like, oh, I'm kind of jazzed to go into my workout. It's supposed to like, oh, straight bar, classic bench again, or whatever it might be. And I think there's some value to some of those advanced methods, whether that's chains or again, rest pause or pyramid sets or something like that. Um, and just that the person who works hard on a more consistent basis for more years in a row will probably outperform people who are kind of inconsistent. So finding things that are fun sometimes outweighs scientific research or, or physiological benefits that might be in the research that are really, you know, small or for, you know, a four week intervention or, or yeah. only untrained people or, or only, you know, men or something like that. <laughs> yes. Do you think there's potentially some benefit for that accommodating resistance in sports performance? I know, I don't, I don't think there's actually any or much research showing the superior benefits, but in terms of if you're breaking it down just from a mechanistic or logical standpoint, just looking at it face value, right? If a traditional barbell lift like a squat, you're spending like 50% of that lift decelerating at the end. So adding bands or chains, okay, we can accelerate through all the way through, turns it more into like a quote unquote ballistic profile, like a jump. Obviously the devil's advocate is then just go jump. Um, but outside of that, with a band, you also potentially speed up the eccentric phase. So you, you may be getting some more benefits, you know, from that eccentric style of training from the bands. Do, do you think there's any benefit in terms of for maybe combat athletes or athletes generally doing something like that? Yeah, I, I do. And I think it's actually more beneficial for those types of people than it would be for powerlifters or bodybuilders yeah. or anything like that, right? Because for powerlifting, again, like I said, nobody fails at the top. It's always yeah. kind of in the middle. Um, for bodybuilders, you know, there's the whole fairly well supported now that like stretch yeah. media hypertrophy getting a lot of load at long muscle lengths is better so when you're using bands or chains you're literally doing the opposite <laughs> so i also real quick i also kind of look at bands and chains for powerlifting or bodybuilding as being really good for somebody who's maybe got like a niggle like a, a knee or a hip yeah. issue or using you know chains for deadlift it allows you to actually train deadlift hard but you're unloading yourself at the bottom when your back is in its most vulnerable position um so again for injuries or, or again if you're kind of feeling overloaded maybe maybe bats and chains yeah. a bit there but for combat athletes or a lot of other you know like i would call them i don't want to be what's the right word i don't want to say real sports because that <laughs> that that makes it seem like i don't think powerlifting is sport and that's actually not true i think powerlifting is actually a very good sport um but you kind of you kind of know what i mean more yep. traditional sports <laughs> um and yes i absolutely do think that way 
because at, to your point, you're maintaining velocity a lot longer, your propulsive phase is a lot longer. Um, but yeah, using using bands for, you know, like shoulder stuff for throwing athletes or something like that, it, it puts the, the sort of peak contraction much farther towards the end when you're throwing a, a, an implement or, you know, if you think about fighting, your fist is an implement, right? You just, mm. You're throwing your fist in a certain way. Uh, that's obviously different than throwing a ball, but you know you're you're moving your lower leg to kick somebody. Um, you're, you're you're using propulsion to do that with the intent of moving it at a fast velocity to its target or you know, past its target, really, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I actually I think bands and chains and things like that are actually much more valuable for non-barbell athletes than they are for barbell athletes. Perfect. Perfect. And just to finish this podcast out, one more paper. Dr. Eric Helms, he was on this podcast a little while ago last year, talking all things, uh, busting a bunch of diapers. And you were just on a paper with him recent, uh, recently, looking at people who want to essentially get stronger and uh, potentially gain weight and muscle, but with small and large energy surpluses. So basically going to a calorie surplus for most people listening. Uh, you probably uh, heard these terms before, understand it, essentially eating more than you're using during the day so you can use that energy to build muscle, ideally if you're training enough, et cetera. Don't let me dive into some of these findings in here because I think I saw Eric talking about it recently that you know you can be in a pretty small energy surplus and still gain significant muscle mass. I might be wrong. Yep. So, um, yeah, this one I remember fairly well because it's pretty it's pretty new. Um, and I made, you know, I made the figures and things like that. So, um, because of that, I have a little bit of a better Perfect. memory on the, on the results for these than some of the other studies, um, where I'm not the lead on them. So <laughs> this one, uh, this one took a long time and was still frankly, probably pretty underpowered in terms of sample size. And that was massively affected by COVID stuff. And so mm. this was a study that was started. Oh, probably rough, roughly about a year before COVID hit. I don't remember when we first collected our first person. Um, but again, you look in that paper, and I can't remember exactly how many people we had per group, but it was not it was not that big. Um, however, uh, the study design was a training study, so really, really cool. Um, hard to pull off in the best of times. <laughs> and we had three groups of people. They come in, they get their body uh, sort of assessed. So we used uh, ultrasound imaging to look at um, a couple different places on the thigh, uh, as well as a couple different places on the upper arm for muscle thickness, uh, and then uh, use skin fold calipers um, to measure basically fat thickness, um, which you could actually argue that might actually even be better than certain things like DEXA or MRI or something like that in terms of like bodybuilding, because you know the skin fold is going to actually affect how your muscle looks as opposed to like getting a body fat percentage off of the DEXA um, also includes like intramuscular intra organal type type fat. So, um, you know, I'm trying to sell us, <laughs> trying to sell us a little bit, but, um, and then uh, out of those three groups, one group was, uh, you know, they gave us, uh, we took a log of their food and all that kind of stuff. And one group uh, was given essentially maintenance calories. So they, uh, their body mass, shouldn't have changed or if it did in the study it was by you know minuscule amounts 
Hmm. Uh, and then we had a group that was on sort of a, a moderate calorie surplus. Uh, what these calorie surpluses were, I can't recall off the top of my head. It should be easy to find. It is an open access paper, by the way. So anybody pull it up. Yeah, and I'll Uh, I'll keep talking while you look for it. Um, So moderate calorie surplus, and then there was a large calorie surplus where the people were, you know, going to gain quite a bit of of mass. And then um, they performed a resistance training exercise, which was supervised a few times a week. And then at the end of it all, they had everything reassessed. So we looked at how much fat thickness they gained, how much body weight they gained, how much muscle mass they gained, uh, as well as how much strength they gained in the uh, bench press, barbell bench press, uh, and the barbell back squat. I I don't think we measured strength in any other way, max strength anyway. And basically the findings were that a large energy surplus did not really result in substantially more lean mass gain, but it did result in substantially more fat mass gain than mm. moderate surplus uh, or the um, uh, maintenance calories. So um, maintenance gained a little bit of muscle mass and like lost a little bit of fat, uh, which was uh, cool, not super amount, huge amounts. Moderate uh, gained uh, you know good amount of muscle uh, and fairly minimal fat. And then the surplus basically gained you know, about the same amount of muscle as the moderate, um, but they gained more fat as well. So it's kind of just highlighting that, yeah, past a certain point, you're probably just going to be gaining fat because it takes the body time (laughs) to build muscle and accumulate amino acids and turn them into proteins and and all of that kind of stuff. So no more dreamer bolts, you know? No more dreamer dirty (laughs) bolts going on. (laughs) I mean, if you want to get your fill of food, uh, you want to just say, hey, for a while, I'm just going to eat what I want. And that ends up with big, big uh, body weight gains, but you're training hard at the same time. You know, uh, I'm not going to say don't do it, but it probably isn't the optimal way to, you know, look and feel your best. So it looks like a moderate surplus was 5% increase and a high surplus was 15%. So what's that? Okay. okay. So that'll be like, if you're on 2000 calories, what's that? That's like a hundred calorie increase. Uh, yeah, five percent. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay, so, uh, and then yeah. if you're on, then it was two thousand three hundred. That's that's actually really damn small. Now that's two thousand three hundred if you're on a fifteen percent increase. But that would be if I'm looking to gain weight, I'm pretty much going to bump two hundred, three hundred calories. Uh, well, I'll I'll be a little higher to two thousand five hundred. What's that? Uh, my mess one. That's still that's still really small. That high isn't isn't stupidly high. That would fall in line with a lot of people's, uh, I guess, arbitrary guidelines for adding, adding calories. Yeah. So, you know, might actually take less of a surplus than you think to build muscle. That, that's another kind of a, of a good takeaway. And again, when I'm looking at the, uh, at the sort of figures, um, you know, for the, for the most part, actually moderate tend to tended to sort of outperform uh, the high group when it came to, to improving muscle thickness. Uh, in the arms and legs anyway. Um, again, relatively underpowered study, so I wouldn't say that it was superior, um, but I would say that it clearly was not inferior. Damn. Is that, I'm just thinking now, like, even if you're on 3,000 calories, there's only a 150 calorie increase. That's all you need. So if your maintenance was 3,000, 150 calorie increase, and that's enough for you to start gaining mass at a similar rate, potentially, yeah. to to having a, what's that, 450 calorie increase. 
without the yes. thing. Yep. Yep. Um, and in fact, like looking at my, looking at the figures, um, you know, the only thing that, that the high group potentially, um, you know, sort of clearly improved at a, at a more, at a higher rate or a faster rate was bench press one RM, uh, hmm. but squat squat was really you know, pretty unclear as well. Um, and, uh, again, in terms of the skin fold, the, the fat, the higher group gained a little bit more, um, maintenance, of course, um, actually went slightly down. They got a little bit less fat, but uh, mm. yeah, to your, to your point, you know, 150 calories. I mean, I don't even, I don't even know what amount of food that, that is. It's so small to sweet. Are, yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly. When we're talking about, um, generally men, uh, although there was some women in that study as well, but we were talking about like larger than average men. You know, 150. I don't even know. That's like it's like a, a scoop small, of protein. Protein has like 120 uh, yeah, calories. Like a, a small granola bar or something, right? Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that makes it's a good thing for people who can't eat a lot to get to gain weight and muscle, but sucks for people who like to eat a lot, like me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, cool. I'm like in a gaining phase. I'm yeah. gonna eat a big old pizza once a week. Or yeah, something. I'm gonna get right? a Costco that, pizza slice that's 600 calories, and it's like, hmm. Yeah. I don't know now, <laughs> you know, or, uh, I mean, the, the, the nice thing is, uh, again, I'm not a nutrition expert per se, but something I read quite a bit about is that, uh, you know, when you have a big meal like that, yeah, like a really big meal, we've all probably experienced like the meat sweats kind of a deal. Or you can eat buffet, man. Really ramps <laughs> up. I mean, you must have food mm. challenges galore around Texas, but I've done a couple in my life Damn. and, uh, uh you know, whether that's eating challenges or just eating a lot with a bunch of like rowdy men and you're just all like eating a bunch of ribs or something like that. And, uh, I just, I remember like, especially being in Canada, you know, I go and I eat a whole bunch of beef ribs with my friends. And then like that night it's in winter and I have to sleep with my window cracked a little bit. Cause I'm just burning <laughs> up. Like I'm just, I'm sweaty and gross and disgusting. And I'm like, I need, I need my window open a little bit, even though it's minus 30 Celsius. Like, <laughs> so your body will, will, you know, upregulate uh, quite good, especially the protein Yeah, where it's like almost impossible to get fat on eating too much protein. It's just going to hurt your wallet, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's actually a really good study. That one on the overfeeding protein study, but we're, we've hit our hour mark here, Dustin, where can people find you and follow you and keep up with all your research and what you're doing? Yeah. So the, the best Two places, I guess, for research uh, are going to be, of course, ResearchGate. So there's ResearchGate.net. Uh, and then if you were just to search Dustin Orinchuk, then I, I put, I literally put everything up there, even if I'm supposed to or not. Um, occasionally a journal will contact me and say, hey, like, we need you to take this down because it, like, you know, it shouldn't be up there. But honestly, I've never, I've very rarely run into problems where I put up a paper that's not open access and I put up something on ResearchGate. So if you really want to open stuff and you want to read it all, uh, the research gate is, is better than like Google Scholar or anything, mm. maybe even better than SciHub because SciHub might not have everything. But yeah, so I I've put up that as much as I can. And only when I'm like threatened by a journal will I take it down. And it's only happened once out of like 50 papers or something. Uh, so researchgate.net. And then uh, I don't post that often. I'm just like retweet, although occasionally I'll post when we do something cool. Is uh, is uh, Twitter or X, 
and that's just uh, at Dustin Warnchuk. I can't even remember if there's a dot in there. Well, let me look. <laughs> um, Let's see. No, it's just at Dustin Warnchuk. Perfect. Easy as. I'll link those in the description too for anyone who's interested. And yeah, if you need the full full text papers, just request them on ResearchGate uh, or message Dustin and don't buy them. He doesn't get any money if you buy them from the journal, unfortunately. No, absolutely. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I've seen some I've seen some good memes like that. It's like, oh, once a PI publishes 100 papers, they, they get enough royalties to pay for their... Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I've seen that. No, I was like, no. hey, I've published papers before. I haven't seen shit. <laughs> no, no, that would be that would be uh, quite something. Um, but yeah, anyway, maybe we'll catch up in a couple of months, and if that uh, yeah pushing versus holding, there's some other cool things that are that are kind of going on, uh, so we can we can always talk about those again. Hell yeah! No, I'm keen as cheers for coming on, Dustin. Appreciate it. Thanks, James. I just got back from New Zealand, by the way, too. So I'm probably oh. real caught up on my uh, my Kiwi slang. <laughs> Perfect.